Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages. I've long been a fan of the music and shows of Kurt Weill. He was writing in the Berlin of the 1920s. His early music was expressionistic, experimental and abstract. But he quickly became identified as one of Germany's most promising young opera composers. He frequently collaborated with Bertolt Brecht, creating shows such as The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany and the Thrupney Opera, making Mac the Knife a staple of singers around the world. Weil's political and musical ideas and his Jewish birth necessitated his departure from Berlin in 1933, but he soon found another musical home in New York, collaborating with talents like Maxwell Anderson, Ira Gershwin, Moss Hart and Ogden Nash on an extensive repertoire that included Knickerbocker Holiday, Lady in the Dark, Johnny Johnson, One Touch of Venus and Lost in the Stars. A Kurt Weill double bill of The Seven Deadly Sins and Mahagoni Songspiel is about to take to the stage at the Old Fitz in Woolloomooloo, presented by Red Line Productions and directed by my guest today, a co-artistic director of Red Line, the director of the Vile Double Bill and an esteemed director in his own right, Constantine Costi. Con joined me to delve into the incredible genius of Kurt Vile and traverse the stellar career he has enjoyed thus far at the helm of theatrical works across a range of stages and styles globally and at home. Equally adept in the worlds of grand opera or intimate storytelling, Con is a theatre maker who has no problem engaging, seducing and captivating an anticipating audience. Do you prefer herbal tea to black tea? If I have more than one caffeinated beverage in a day, I'm doing you know, break dancing on the ceiling. So I, I, I get too hyped up. Right. Yeah. Well, how do you maintain your energy in a rehearsal period? <laughs> it's this funny thing where I feel like it's like, it's such a classic thing where the 15 minutes before you start a rehearsal, when you're walking into the room, you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm tired. How am I going to do this? How am I going to summon up this creativity? And then the joy of it is really, you just get into a flow state when it's working. Yeah. So something takes over you and suddenly three hours have passed. So, so good work, um, engagement with what you're doing energizes yeah. yourself. Yeah, it's all about the work. Yeah, all about the work. You know, I think a lot of directors you don't live for opening night. Opening night, you're kind of you know biting your nails to the wick. You live for the for everything before that, I believe, which mm. is the fun bit where you're creating something and making something. So no chocolate bars, no no Barocca. <laughs> no, 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 no. no, no. God, no. I can't. I mean, I don't know how people can have like a big burger or a curry at lunchtime. Like I need to eat super light and otherwise you're going to be, you know, passed out in the rehearsal room. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Start to get groggy and slow down. <laughs> you know, I worked with a singer once who came back from, this is an Italian singer, when I was in China who came back from like, you know, this 90 minute lunch and we're running really behind. He's like... Eh, Constantine, please, uh, I must have uh, my digestion break, you know, so I think that's kind of, that's something you want to avoid that I saw first time. Or build that into the rehearsal uh, schedule. Yeah, you should, yeah, 20 minute digestion break, nap. <laughs> I think that was, you should be called a smoker. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you like on opening night? 
I'm a mess. Yeah, I'm, it's, yeah. like, it's a running gag in my... Like, my family won't pick up the phone anymore before opening night because they know that it's just going to be this sort of um, ridiculous, unfounded anxiety. But I think if you don't have the fear under you, then, you know, there's a problem. What's well, that fear of the unknown, isn't it? I mean, we can be assured that it's, it's all going to work. Is it going to be all right on the night? Yeah. It always is all right on the yeah, night. Yeah. If you've done the work, yeah. the preparation, um, it'll yeah. be all right on the night. But, um, yeah, th- those butterflies are... Um, essential aren't they just to to keep you engaged and alive i think so and it's such a weird job hey because directing you're the ultimate control freak you know you're putting this whole thing together you get time to stop and start and to sculpt and then you hand it over to the most unpredictable way to deliver the material which is just live in front of an audience you can't do anything about it so it's this total clash between letting go and being the, the 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 controller so i think it's like totally odd and fun and thrilling you know are you good at letting go um, on opening night, giving it over to the cast and the stage management? Yeah, definitely. You have to. You yeah. have to. Otherwise, number one, you go mad. And number two, that's also just part of it. You know, you kind of, you send it off and see what happens. Well, I would assume also at this stage of your career, you are going off to something else. So you can't. <laughs> yeah. It's a relief to hand something over. In a way, yes. You know, because like, even at the moment, you know, I opened Ledge Weave and start rehearsals on the Kurt Vile that I'm doing at the Old Fitz. And it's nicest now I've got Alivi and French Grand Opera out of my mind, out of my system, and I can go somewhere completely different, but you need to sort of purge in that way. Well, yes, I went to Large Weave on opening night. Congratulations. It was, it was just magnificent. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing the Kurt Weill at uh, the Old Fitz. But just there, the, the Sydney Opera House, the Joan Sutherland Theatre, the, the Old Fitz Theatre, what a contrast in spaces. You know, you've got that vast canvas... And then that intimate campus, yeah. uh, canvas, um, uh, staging two operas, very different operas, but they are operas. Um, how do you make that, that, that change? How do you adapt that from uh, recalibrate to different size spaces? Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's this funny thing because, you know, I'm, I've been really lucky and really spoiled that I actually find a small space quite intimidating. My nightmare is a one-woman show with a chair and, a, and, a, and you know, a light. Like, that's my biggest nightmare. I need it. You know, I need something to hide behind it, but it's spectacle, right? But, um, so doing this at the Fitz, I think something that I've really learned is actually the principles are the same. And a tiny gesture on a huge space, if it's executed in a way that's um, sincere and truthful, will read you know, to the back row or to the circle. Mm. That's, that doesn't really matter. You know, it's why you can see something in a huge space and go, oh, this is completely over the top because it's insincere and because it's, you know, it's just sort of resting on cliche. So even though, yeah, the scale is different, the actual foundations are the same, which is just like intention, dramatic performance of a high quality and giving a bit of heart and soul to it. Mm-hmm. So... Um there's also been uh, in your career a, a vast range of styles and forms that you've explored theatre, opera, music videos indeed. Yep. What, what attracts you to making theatre? Um, Telling I, stories. Yeah, in a way. I mean, creating worlds, which is super exciting. I get to live in a kind of alternate reality, you know, where I can construct with a team a little universe and a little fantasy world where we're in charge and we can make a kind of playground and a little bubble and then invite people in to you know leave their leave your troubles at the door kind of thing you know mm. and to get completely absorbed and that's something that you know when I saw and when I see theater that means something it's so moving and so powerful and so exciting so to be able to kind of replicate that for other people is a definite motivating factor for me it's um uh, yes, it's one thing to engage people, entertain them, but but as a theatre maker, um, a practitioner, you're also informing them, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, La Juive, for example, you know, you you set it in the '30s in uh, pre-war. Um, just watching that, I learned a lot more about the, the Jewish culture, um, the, the period, um, and, and the vial is not that dissimilar in in time and, mm-hmm. and place is mm-hmm. it either but, yeah. um, so in preparing works i imagine you need to be a historian yeah you need to enjoy your history yeah when you're when you're preparing a production and and also with opera a, a linguist yeah completely i mean that's that's a huge that's a huge part of my job and a part of my job that i like really enjoy which is 
going to the state library, getting out these obscure books and diving into the period, you know, because what's really important to remember particularly with opera, is that at one point these were new works. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense of like everything is sort of this like ossified Mount Rushmore of like La Traviata, La Boheme. But they were scrappy new works where everybody was kind of like, will this succeed? Won't this succeed? We've got all these problems. There was an energy and a frisson of something being created new. So I can historically go back and then go, okay, what was happening in the society at the time, with the people who made it at the time, and then think about how that informs the DNA of the text and of the music, and then can sort of adapt it for a new staging. It's a huge part of the process. And yeah, being a linguist as well, like, you know, it's a it's a horror show when the director is reading the, the CD booklet for a half-baked translation. Like, you have to do this deep dive into languages that aren't your own, because mm-hmm. in opera, what's unique about it is that the singers come in and know it, um, you know, backwards and forwards in order to be able to sing it. So they've been working on it for months in advance, sometimes years in advance. So if I haven't done my homework in the same way, I can't play. And, you know, I can't really, um, you know, have that kind of great tennis match that is directing a singer. Mm. Support them in what they're, what they're singing about. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You can't fake it. And <laughs> <laughs> many try. I've tried, but, you know. Uh, and opera uh, is like, you know, those, those century-old texts of Shakespeare also. Um, you've got to find a contemporary resonance. You know, why was Shakespeare or, or Verdi, uh, what were they writing for the people of the day? Yep. Um, and I guess in your preparation, you've also got to, what am I serving up for the people of the day? With Completely. This Completely. Text? Mm. And Verdi is a really good example, particularly when you look at like something like the Traviata, where every single character on that stage is based on a real person. You know, the Corazon is Marie Duplessis, Gastone is Franz Liszt. The Baron was based on a kind of cuckoldy, sort of rich um, Baron who was around at the time. And so that's a clue where you go, right, these are real people, so let's give it an intimacy and a reality and a sense of um, viscera to it. It's not all kind of behind glass. So, yeah, going into that research and looking into how to make it modern and contemporary informs not only the aesthetic like I don't really I think this sort of idea of like let's put Shakespeare in suits is just kind of like lazy bullshit you know Mm -hmm. where I think there's something way more human than to the sort of like Martin Place aesthetic that's on your back you know we can find something even if it's an in period right I love a period drama Mm -hmm. but let's find how to make the emotions pressing and updated and relatable that's exciting to me I love a costume drama too you know and um it's increasingly disappointing. Uh, disappointing, I found certainly in the last ten years. You go to see a, a, a classic like a, a Pygmalion or a, a Tartuffe or something, and you oh, I'm going to see some great frocks and yeah. some great gowns and yeah, a nice yeah. set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, they put it all in suits. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I get so disappointed because you you, know, you go to see the storytelling, which is contributed to by a whole range of people, including the designers. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't it interesting as well that like I kind of feel like and look, I love a contemporary rendering. Like the vial we're doing is going to be contemporary. But um, there has been an interesting upswing with, um, if you look at all these like shows that are on Netflix, um, what's that one I'm trying to remember? Uh, anyway. Joe versus Carol. Joe versus, but even earlier, um, yeah, Joe versus Carol. Yeah, the great, yeah, 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 that great period piece in Florida. But even Hamilton, right? Yeah. That, those are period costumes. Mm. And that is attracting an audience of like who are in their 20s, uh, you know, earlier teenagers who are going crazy for this thing. And it's a period costume drama to an extent. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but with a, a contemporary sure. resonance also, you know. Sure, but I um, think... Yeah. A, a lingerie approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think it's, you know, things happen in swings. Like when I was a teenager, it was nothing worse than a period drama, but now there's something kind of really interesting and appealing about them. And you know what? Like period, non-period, who cares? Just do it well, in, mm. in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Serve the text, tell the story. Mm-hmm. La Traviata, of course, was uh, another big... Um, high point of your career uh, had an opera on Sydney Harbour in 2021 uh, again a very different type of stage you know and a, a huge canvas you had Sydney Harbour that you were you were playing against how did you approach that yeah I mean so the first thing is you're totally right where it's like okay there's a few practicalities here which is effectively at its best, I'm complimented by the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. At its worst, I'm in competition with the two most two of the most exciting structures in the world, right? People start to wonder. Yeah, and yeah. Count I'm the like, sales. no, no, no. Look back, look back at the stage. I promise you. Um, so, 
that's a practicality. Then it's just like the absolute insanity of it being out in the open. So there were just like these pressing, important logistical things that we had to tackle. And the first was like, this thing needs to be ready to go once we get on site. Because once we get on site, it's so unpredictable. We lost something like four stage calls on that on that place because of the rain and because of the wind, you know. So we lost all this time. So with me and the team, we had to have this kind of like well-oiled machine when we when we went out on into the elements. And then it was like this kind of game of um, sculpting the focus of the audience and really working with the chorus and the dancers. There were a hundred people on that stage. Mm-hmm. So how do I make the or- where do you look right? And that was really about making sure that every single person on that stage knew the world that we were in, knew the story we were telling. And, you know, often like these poor dancers will be like really involved in the scene and they don't speak Italian. They have no idea what's going on. Whereas we'd put a lot of effort into like sitting everyone down and going beat by beat. This is what they're saying. This is how it affects you. So then suddenly all of the chorus and the dancers and the actors were almost an extension of the audience in a way. So it almost felt like theatre in the round, weirdly. So then suddenly you could take your cue from this chorus who were all looking at Violetta at that point, looking at Alfredo on that point, and you knew where to look and knew how to feel, you know, which is like an important part beyond the music, which will tap into something subconscious. If you see kind of waiter number seven who looks completely bored, it's going to take you out of it, you know, if he's like chewing gum. So um, it was really this exercise in the psychology of the group. And I think that was something that we really put a lot of effort into did you ever have to give notes to waiter number seven all the time (laughs) (laughs) all the time hold the the the, the tray higher i mean that's the thing right every you know it's a cliche there's no small roles and i Mm. I do kind of believe that that it needs to be like a total immersion in this world and you know if 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 one little domino falls the whole thing collapses in in my opinion you're a sculptor or a painter aren't you Mm -hmm. You're, you're, you're providing that detail in the stage picture Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and it's 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 a it's a moving picture that needs to sort of you know the brush strokes need to be kind of coordinated at the correct time, and at times you want to rip up the canvas as well, you know. So you got to kind of really play that game of, as you say, pictorially telling the story. Mm. I marvelled at your large weave the other night too. Uh, a huge chorus. Yeah. Is it easy to uh, move a chorus around the stage? <laughs> <laughs> I, because they excelled in large weave, but yeah. um, that must require a lot of work. I mean, you're, you're part choreographer too I guess completely completely you need to sort of draw on the whole gamut right and then so you know La Jouer which I revive so it's this like precarious looking staircase which is like the beauty of a staircase which it gives an element of tension and then um you know I'm dealing with people who they're, they're they're into the opera is their voice initially so they're not there you're not in the chorus because you're an amazing dancer right you're there because you can sing really well and have dramatic ability so then when I want to get them moving, it really is, again, of a process of being, like, going back to the basics and not being like, okay, now everybody rush to the left. It's about, like, we are moving to the left for this specific reason and then fast, slow, upstage, downstage doesn't really matter. They can stand there and sing, but if the the motor of what they're doing is... um is kind of um, motivated then um, you know then, it, then it'll read and then it'll work so that's what it all comes down to really in terms of working with them physically then the smallest things will read as a you know mm-hmm. is a lesson I keep coming back to La Traviata you had uh, two attempts at mm-hmm. um, you were in rehearsal and, and almost taken to the stage when, uh, when COVID reared its ugly head that must have been deeply uh, distressing that all that work and energy um down the plug hole, so to speak. Yeah, it's 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 funny, isn't it? Because at the time, so we were one day from going from you rehearse at Homebush in this big gym, so we're one day from going to the gym onto the harbour stage, and yeah, we got shut down. And look, it was just such a kind of roller coaster where I think at that point the Traviata on Sydney Harbour wasn't sort of the priority of international affairs. Like the whole world was going into shutdown, so it's. It's kind of like, you know, you just sort of get caught up in the moment. But yeah, there is an element of like, damn it, we put in all this work. And that's something that everybody beyond the performing arts felt about things that they were putting their time and energies into. So, you know, it's sort of this um, sense of communal loss, I suppose, that we were all sharing in. Um, so, and I just feel really lucky that we're able to do it eventually. So that was, you know, that's the silver lining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Opera on the Harbour is, of course, uh, a big event on the international calendar. Um, but with COVID... 
yeah. uh, certainly caused to be a, a problem, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that was amazing, you know, because it is like this sort of tourist pool, but we sold really well and it was an audience of locals. And that was so awesome to see that like people were, were coming to see this thing who were Sydney siders or who lived within the country. So there was something inspiring about that, actually, that um, there's a market here who are hungry for this sort of thing. And, and so many people also with the Opera on the Harbour who are seeing an opera for the very first time, you know, they're pulled yeah. down to the spectacle and the event of, of that um, performance. Yeah, completely. I mean, that was so rewarding for me, right? Because I didn't come from an opera background, right. you know, and so I love like the aficionados and the experts, you know, who come in. But I remember one night when we, um, when Violetta goes up in her chandelier at the end of Sempre Libera, right? So she goes up there and, and, and hit the high note at that point and someone in the audience raised up their hands and went, hell yeah! And I was like, this is my crowd. These are my people. And yeah. I kind of hope in a way that, you know, if you get something out of it, then maybe you'll move on to more challenging or interesting repertoire as well and, you know, mm-hmm. venture into the opera house to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Your role as revival director, are you able to have much of your own creative input to that or are you just recreating what happened originally yeah. on the stage? It's a, it's a good question. So the Traviata was great because that, even though it was, you know, the original kind of, we zhuzhed up the original set, Brian Thompson and myself, and it was a new direction and a new show. Um, so really lacking that context, I'm able to do something new. When it's a strict revival, like La Juive, you can't, you can't do a photocopy of what they did in Leon in 2016. I think you would be absolutely mad to. Because then, what am I doing? I'm telling Diego Torre to do something that he doesn't want to do and doesn't make sense, and I don't even know the reason why. So it's really about taking the the kind of the sets and the costume and then you know, trying to tap into, all right, what do I think they were trying to do? This thing is set in the 1930s, but there's no Nazi stuff on the stage. So maybe it's more of a Kristallnacht. There's something looming over the horizon that's about to explode with, you know, the the Nazi party. And then really kind of like, I'm working with singers who have different bodies, different ideas, different perspectives. Let's get it up and running and make it up, make it our own, but still being true to the original essence of what they were doing in Leon back then. Do you get much material from that Leon production? You, you've got blueprints and photographs and do sound recordings and yeah. you submerge yourself in all of that? Yeah, I mean, it really depends from house to house. Like, you know, um, a lot of these European... Leon has been great, but a lot of these European opera houses are the definition of chaos. So you'll get sort of like a coffee-stained score with cigarette burns on it, and you're sort of trying to, like, divine what the hell is going on here. It's like reading hieroglyphics half the time with the stuff that they send over. Um, and then I'm given, like, a video, so I'll watch that a few times, the original production. But, look, I don't... I really just don't subscribe to the idea of 100% replicating what they did. It has to be new. It has to be fresh, you know? We're not in the business of just sort of, um, you know, conveyor belt manufacture of opera here. It needs to, it needs to feel fresh and exciting. Great. So you can, you can make it your own production. Yeah. After somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Fantastic. It's a delicate game. Um, as a kid, did you uh, escape into other worlds through books, films? Mm-hmm. What, what was your, your yeah. gateway to other worlds? A hundred percent. I think that's really well said in terms of it being, yeah, art as a gateway to alternate universes and a way of elevating your experience. So I was just an obsessive kid who would just pour over books, pour my life into music. I was a passionate guitarist and piano player. And so, and also it's this funny thing where, you know, it's, um, it's a way of what I love about art of any description is that it's a kind of, it's a link throughout history where I can read stuff that was written in the 1800s and 1700s and suddenly you don't feel so lonely because they were going through the same thing you know mm-hmm. and there's something very humbling and therapeutic about that and I don't necessarily subscribe to like didactic or um, you know art as therapy as being its primary purpose but you can't help but feel like there's something amazing about diving into the legacy of the human story uh, politics, political systems completely change and you know technology gets outdated but stories are stories and they're going to be around as long as we are. And so this is the ways of telling these same things. So I find it utterly inspiring that I'm able to work in this field as well and contribute in my own small way to what I think is the purpose of why we're here, you know, not to get too grandiose about it, but, you know, let's, let's take it seriously. What were your favourite uh, stories, novels growing up? Um, Maybe some that you revisited 
few times. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that you read which is definitely for a certain age, you know? Like, so when I was 16, 17, it was like this obsession with the beat generation, you know? So I'm reading Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac going, yeah, I'd love to be kind of on the road, you know? And now that I'm a bit older, <laughs> like, oh my God, that's so passe. And then, you know, things that I sort of raised my nose at when I was a teenager as well, like um, a lot of Renaissance art, I was like, oh, it's all just bloody pictures of crying Jesus. And, um, and now that I'm a bit older, I'm like, isn't this amazing that these incredible painters could only, you know, in terms of the patronage, were very much told you have to paint either the portrait of Baron von Schmiggenswerkt or this obscure biblical scene. So within those parameters, how they were make, able to make something personal and beautiful and extraordinary amongst those strictures where it wasn't like this idea of creativity you know Hieronymus Bosch wasn't sort of waking up in the morning going I'm feeling so weird and wacky and I'm just going to express myself like you know he was a he was a painter who was just doing a job and through that craft did something absurd and extraordinary so I have this new appreciation for stuff that I thought was a bit lame to be honest you went to Riverview yeah great drama program at uh, mm-hmm. Riverview yeah were, were you involved in, in the drama you know, performing in productions maybe even did you have a go at directing a production when you were yeah I mean look it's the thing about like a a drama class is that it's always like the bossy little upstarts who end up kind of like directing whatever they're doing so you know I was I think I was famous for undermining these poor directors who would kind of come in and not successfully but doing my best and um yeah I completely loved it it was just so much fun within this like you know like uh this school which is like very kind of sporty Rugby and surprise, surprise! I wasn't in the first fifteen for rugby. I know. Looking at me, you, you definitely see. Like, I know. Work on yeah, it's, it, it's it's crazy. I know. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I think I was really lucky that we were able to to play really and to you know to um in that way, as you know, that kids can just be so free and creative to kind of really uh yeah spread your wings. I guess it was a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of actors and, and creators have come out of Riverview, so mm-hmm. that, that's a reflection, certainly, of the of the drama program there. Yeah. What sort of productions were you doing? What were we doing? We did... I played Violet Beauregard in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> which was great. I, I mean, look, and I was always in with them. The, the woman who made the costumes who was also a Latin teacher. So, I mean, we, I can't sing, right? I remember we did Les Mis. And I played, like, Man on the Dock, number seven or something, but I managed to sort of get this elaborate costume where I had, like, a period-accurate cane and a top hat. And so, you know, I was always in these sort of, like, lavish get-ups because, you know, I was chummy with, um, with Madame Moisey. It's the attention to detail. That's right. No small roles. Yeah. <laughs> um- the artistic influences as a kid, uh, your family, did they go to the theatre? Did they listen to music? Uh... I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely not. I didn't grow up in, like, a particularly high art opera household by any stretch of the imagination. Like, my parents were just incredibly hard workers. There was a love of um, Greek music in my house that I remember. I remember, like, Tom Jones being played a lot and the Beatles being played a lot. And what was fun was that my mum had me when she was, like, 20. So I had this really young mother who was, like, super fun. So there was lots of, like, putting on the king and I and us sort of mucking up, you know, her and I mucking around and pretending to be the roles. And so in this sort of, like, really playful and fun way, I do when I really think about it, even though it wasn't, like... I'm on Constantine, time to attend the theatre. There was something really theatrical and fun uh, in my upbringing that definitely, I think, uh, laid those early foundations, which probably backfired for my parents in a way. <laughs> <laughs> the King and I, were, were there many cast recordings in the, in the house? No, we were just watching the films. The, you know, the film, Yule Brenner, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. It was all of that stuff. And, you know, like, the King and I, Singing in the Rain, Fiddler on the Roof, like, they were kind of uh, on loop in, in my household. But great classic stories also, and, yeah. and, and of theatre construction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that moment in The King and I where uh, Anna and the King take off and shall we dance is... It's great. Extraordinary it's moment. It's magic, yeah. 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 It's, it's as if the show builds to that, that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yet you, your siblings, you know, you've got a playwright, there's a composer. Yeah. So obviously something rubbed off on you all. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what that is. And, like, I think it is something that's just sort of... um. It's symptomatic of, like, the opportunities that you're given that can make these things surface, you know. My Bapul, um, there was no theatre department in the theatre in the village Vadili in Cyprus, you know. But I do wonder, you know, he was someone who had, a, you know, a, a beautiful flair to his spirit and a, and a deep appreciation for the world around him. Maybe he would have been a composer. Maybe my Nunnul, who was a 
um, someone who, you know, sold fruit his entire life and did very well for himself. But, um, you know, he could recite poetry at the drop of a hat. This is an uneducated person who had, you know, vast tracks of Banjo Patterson memorized that he'd tell you. And um, so I do think that, like, I'm just really lucky that I was given opportunities where these things were viable. The Greeks certainly invented theatre. Yes, and so everything else. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but you know that that ex- wonderful foods and culture yeah. and celebration and music. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. It's um, it's the theatre of the everyday. That's what I love about it. There's nothing more theatrical than a Greek wedding. My God, you know. Smash a few plates. Smash a few plates. Dancing, storytelling, dramas. You know, it's in you know in a cast of millions when you're there at the, okay. the Cypress Club. It's amazing. It's like Fantasia. You know, you look over and there's more people kind of multiplying at these weddings. Yeah. Now, now, of course, you come from a, a seafood dynasty. Mm-hmm. We're talking about um, the Costi uh, Empire. There um, was there any, ever any thought that that you would go into the family business or any expectation? Um. No, not really. I mean, I think, as you said, like my parents, you know, my dad went to quite a rough school and was so they were very keen on us having an education that they didn't get. Um, The fish shop was something that we were always involved with, you know, my entire upbringing, working, you know, uh, those mornings and after school and, you know, something that I, you know, continue to do around Christmas time that I'll be I'll be working at the fish shop. So, um, yeah, there was always this sort of idea that yeah, the fish shop is there and the skills are there, but I think they really wanted us to do something that was maybe, um, could engage, uh, uh, you know, to have a place in the world in a different, in a different way, I mm. suppose. So it's, it's, you know, there would have been no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with working at the fish shop, but no. they just wanted the options to be open for us. Mm. Yeah. Look, and, you know, markets, fish markets, um, out at Flemington, yeah. it's wonderful theatre. It's the best. You know, I remember going with my dad as a little kid to the markets early in the morning and, like, mm. it being freezing and you're rugging up and there's, like, these old wogs screaming at each other on the auction floor and mud crabs escaping and, you know, it was um, it was definitely unusual to see that side of the world mm. as a little kid. Yeah, the colours, the smells, yeah. the, the personalities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. Tell me about your puppet theatre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 it's due for it's due for a revival, I think. Oh, just um you know, these funny things that you don't even think about it at the time, but like just as kids given this little puppet theatre and we'd make our own you know, our own little puppets and things and um we'd like the army of cousins who would come in and out of our house just putting on these little shows and you know, you'd always find yourself uh directing them in a way and uh yeah, I guess that was a way of kind of cutting my teeth in in, in this industry, I suppose. All those experiences, are you starting to formulate an idea that, that the arts are where, where you want to work, that you, that's what you want to do, you want to tell yeah, stories? definitely. I always wanted to be involved in the arts in some way, and I just didn't really... I don't think I had a choice. You know, I wasn't forced into it. I, 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 as I say, my parents weren't in the industry, you know, um, but I just always found myself, like, as a sensitive, creative kid, being completely electrified by it. And I think... You know, there's an element of um, vocation, I guess. And I, I, I do believe in that. Mm. There's, there's something in your genes and the circumstances around you that um, you're at the mercy of uh, forces that you don't quite understand that draw you to something. And were you drawn, perhaps, first of all, to being a film director? Because you studied film at uni. I studied film at uni. I mean... That was at UTS, and I had a fine time. But you know, throughout all of that, t- throughout all of that period, I was making plays with my my friends. You know, so it was sort of, um, yeah, it was great to learn those skills. And I, I love cinema; like, I'm so passionate about it. But I just kept sort of finding myself like finding an you know an abandoned hall or a warehouse somewhere and putting on a show. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite film? Um, what did I watch the other day? I rewatched for the four hundredth time um, Nights of Cabiria, the Fellini. Film, oh, yeah, huge yeah. fan of Fellini. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think like really this sort of cinema that kind of takes you somewhere ecstatic and um, you know dreamlike. You know, suddenly we created a medium that could capture the experience of dreaming. And to, in my in my personal taste, that's when cinema's at its best. Mm-hmm. Is there a Fellini film that you think would work on stage? I don't know. Like I, I kind of, I don't really, I, I don't really. I'm always a bit, like, sus when, um, you know, films go on the stage because it's a bit like, are we just cashing in on sort of, like, 
this nostalgia and I just want to see the movie that I like in the theatre, I think there has to be some sort of theatrical, like a really good reason in order for... A new way of telling that story. A new way of telling that story that, you know, that it will benefit in that way. And obviously it's been done, like, super successfully... But with Fellini, I'm just happy to for those things to be trapped in celluloid. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree too. You know, you watch a film, and there are certain moments in a film. If you go to see a stage adaptation, you expect to see them, yeah, done just as well yeah, or yeah. better. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that's that's a difficult challenge. Completely. So, Nida, how did that come into your orbit? You obviously aware that it was the the country's leading training institution. Yeah. Um, so that came into my orbit through a really like funny way as I told you I was just like directing amateur shows around Sydney like you'd find a warehouse you'd find a theatre and just sort of like put on a show I did The Merchant of Venice at the Genesian Theatre in Sydney when I was like 21 and then I was like oh I'd, I'd, I'd like John Bell to come and see this and I had no connections to the industry and just sort of rocked up at his office and um, he took me on as an intern and then I had no I didn't really like uni very much I didn't particularly like school very much so I had no real interest in going back to school and then he said to me I think you should go to NIDA. He saw some of my work subsequently and um, and gave me that introduction. And then I was there when I was 23 doing the directing course, you know, with six people in sort of like the beautiful flurry of that institution. Yeah, yeah. The directing intake is small, isn't it? Yeah. yeah there's only about six of you. So yeah. I, I guess you get to know each other pretty, pretty um, intimately. Absolutely. And also you end up kind of directing each other in these hypotheticals. And, you know, so uh, I was really lucky, though, that I was with a really talented cohort of directors and um everyone was sort of we all got along which is like super rare you know it's sort of more exciting if i could say we were tearing each other's throats out but um you know we were lucky in that the course was so intense under agil which i loved so it was nice having a cohort where we felt like we were sharing in the boot camp of it a Gil hipster yeah of course running the directing course yeah yeah uh, but of course when you graduate you're all in competition with each other with each other for the jobs aren't yeah. you yeah but I guess because you were so you got on so well are you supportive of each other completely we were all like very... a bit green if somebody else gets a gig <laughs> no because you know it's that funny thing like just because I don't get a gig doesn't mean that I'm second in line you know so it's sort of it's a fool's game to be overly jealous but um yeah, I mean, that was the funny thing when I finished NIDA. I, hadn't, I had nothing going on, you know, so I sort of had to start again, but with all the skills under my belt, which was great. And you all work out your own niche um, focuses anyway. You know, yours has yeah. been opera and uh, to a degree, as well as other things. Yeah, completely. You, you find your groove, you know, and then, um, then it's less about competition and more about... I love getting the people who I've graduated with, like getting their feedback on stuff I'm doing. And, you know, we, we talk shop and, you know, it's like... It's it's not necessarily kumbaya, but it's nice being it's nice being part of a community of people who can share in the particulars and the niches of what we do because it is so specific and odd. Mm. Whose work, playwrights, have you enjoyed bringing to the stage? Do you have a favourite playwright or playwrights whose work you like to explore? Yeah, I mean, obviously, my 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 head always goes straight away to librettists in a way who are. I think the unsung heroes mm, of mm. the opera. Mm. So even when I look at, for instance, the work that I've done as an assistant on the Da Ponte trilogy, you know, when I worked on the Marriage of Figaro, looking at that text and that playwrights text, and they are playwrights, um, was kind of remarkable. And I love the Rubik's cube and the challenge of working with a classic text. You know, I think there's something really exciting about that, and as well because it's closer to music when you're dealing with rhythm and when you're dealing with um you know texts that were written hundreds of years ago that almost verge on poetry that really speaks more to my wheelhouse like i'm not particularly interested in doing like a very sparse textual muscular rendition of something because that's not my skill you know i, I love music and i love things that are sort of a bit more elevated above the everyday you mentioned john bell you've worked with directors opera directors like barry kosky yeah and um Elijah Majinski yeah and uh, who, who I guess that, to a degree they've all been a great faculty of teachers for you yeah what do you what have you learned from working with those those directors everything I mean this is the thing you can't the thing about being a director is you can't do it in your bedroom as much as you can like yell at the toaster for missing their cue and you know like have a go at the mop at your, at your, at your home kitchen theatre it's really not the same you can't do it at home as a hobbyist right and particularly opera how, how are you going to do that so I had some of the best training imaginable. So I win a scholarship to go over and work as an intern with Barry Kosky 
on Eugene on Yagen uh, at the commercial opera which which he runs mm. and from Barry you know I'm expecting like, I'm, we're all under the shadow of Barry right in the opera world like he really just like he didn't open the door he threw a grenade at the door in terms of what was possible in this country and to remove it from a sort of like let's just do our version of like 19th century English staging to make something that was both you know incredibly biographical with his Hungarian Jewish background and then also something very Australian with like his unique irreverence you know which I think is a particularly Australian quality mm-hmm. so then I'm going I'm going to the commercial opera to work with Barry like I'm terrified you know to work with like my hero in a way and um you know there's stories of him like you know when he did King Lear at Bell Shakespeare you know giving John Bell these dildos to throw around the stage and blah 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 so I'm like <laughs> here we go time to meet like the Wunderkind and what I was actually faced with was someone who was incredibly warm and funny and open in his process. And so it was really good to see that his kind of theatrical daring and taste is actually grounded in something that's very approach- approachable, transparent and operating in a high level of passion and enthusiasm. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, working with a director like David McVicker, who I worked with a handful of times, who is known for his uh, very accurate historical period dramas to see that they're not so different in a way, both extremely knowledgeable and passionate. And I think what I learned from David was, you know, he came in and to do The Marriage of Figaro, and then I worked with him as an intern at the Vienna State Opera on Falstaff. The guy didn't even glance at his score. It was freaky to the point where he was like, we'll take it from figure number eight, right? And I'm like, what the hell is figure number eight? You know, and so suddenly the bar was set high. And so that, these are things that I've learned that if you want to operate this, like, you know, opera is a bit of a, it's a bit of a blood sport in a way that you can really get chewed up and spat out if you don't know your material. So you need to go in there like a kind of, um, for want of a better word, like an elite athlete who's at the top of their, at the top of their game. So it was really good to see like what that standard was and to have something to aspire to. Mm. Your co-artistic director at the moment of Redline Productions, who are based under the old Fitz um, Hotel in Woolloomooloo, uh, that's uh, an exciting tri- tri- what's it triumvirate triumvirate yeah. thank you of, of, <laughs> of you and Alex Bellage and uh, Catherine Van Davies. Yeah, tell me about the co- being co-artistic director. When did that opportunity come along? Was that something that you had to apply for? Were you approached to do it? Yeah, it was amazing because. You know, I, I, I'd started carving this, this um, I'd call it, I don't know, an excessive niche of spectacle and opera, right? That it's so, it's so specific, but so big. And then in the first lockdown, I was just given a, a call to say, would you be interested? I was approached and um, I knew Alex and I got to know Kat Van Davies, who are both like the most extraordinary practitioners and who are so, who are great believers in the form and the great believers in... Um, you know, in our job in terms of like creating a culture amongst audiences and amongst the people who make work. And so suddenly it was this like beautiful opportunity to kind of um, to be involved with a theatre which has such an incredible reputation and rightly so for these works that are explosive and the stuff that like, you know, for want of a better word, I don't really believe in this distinction, but like the main stages wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole and to go let's do it here like you know let's take your let's take a director's pitch or a playwright's pitch and be like no no no, don't give us the censored version don't give us the commercial version what do you actually want to do and often that's the thing that will sell tickets and the things that people want to see and then with the Kurt Weill that I'm doing so initially I was like I would just really like to be a part of the the curation of this space and to be part of the artistic team and didn't really have as I said to you like the idea of directing in a smaller theatre I find quite intimidating Mm. And then um, the opportunity of uh, support from the Kurt Weill Foundation in New York opened up. So I got on the phone to them and I was like, look, I'm co-running this theatre. It, it's, it's a 10-minute walk from Sydney's Red Light District. And they had a 15-piece reduction of The Seven Deadly Sins. And so I was like, and there was a funding opportunity. And they were like, we'd love it. Kurt Weill would have loved this, blah, blah, blah. And so they took us on. And so suddenly I'm able to, in a very modest and humble way, uh, financially support this bizarre, ridiculous, and I think hopefully ecstatic experience, which is going to be world-class opera with a 15-piece orchestra in this tiny theatre. I think it's going to be out of control. (laughs) 
which is is amazing because how many people does how many patrons does the theatre see? Fifty five, right? Yeah, fifty five okay. patrons. Well, I was talking to the team the other day, right? And I was like, often the hook for people who work in opera is this. I was lucky enough as an intern or a young singer, whatever, to go to a rehearsal room or to a Zitzprobe, which is, you know, when the orchestra and the uh, singers come together for the first time. And I was two meters from the music and it came to life and suddenly I was hooked. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why don't we just do this at the Fitz? You know, it's something that I experienced that was so beautiful and so fun. Let's give this like rare opportunity for opera of an incredible um, pedigree, I'll say. Like, I've got some of the best things at Opera Australia who are going to be in this. You know, Brian Carlsungin is conducting. Like, the standard is going to be so high. So let's have it, you know, up close and personal. That's very exciting. Very exciting. And look, I have to agree too. Um, the most exciting theatre that I'm seeing around Sydney stages at the moment is happening on the fringe, you know, w- yep. with Siren Theatre Company, Outhouse, yeah. Red Lion. Um, I, I'd much rather go and see some of those shows any day yeah. than, than what's what we see with main stage. As good as good as they are too, but as far as excitement and and, and um, yeah, new, throwing caution new vision, to the wind. Yeah, caution to the wind. I think is exactly uh, what you mean. Three heads are, are probably better than one. Mm-hmm. Um, Theatre relies on collaboration. Is it easy to navigate the uh, the co artistic roles? You know, to be honest, at first there was an element of trepidation where I was like, God, what if we, you know, disagree in big ways or we just don't click? And I think we're really lucky in the alchemy between Kat, Alex and myself is just really kind of bubbling and, and on point. And I think we're seeing also a move towards leadership positions being shared because one person cannot be the beacon of all perspectives and all clarity. So we're able to cover each other's blind spots as well, which I think is like completely useful. And, you know, I think about it this way in terms of taste and aesthetic. We all live in different streets, Kat, Alex and I, but we're all in the same neighbourhood. So we, we, we converge in a lot of ways, which is great. So we're rarely, um, you know, disagreeing. It's more about extending the ideas that we all share, which is, it's been an absolute joy. Seven Deadly Sins is about two sisters travelling across America. Yep. Do you have a favourite sin? <laughs> Look, I mean, I'm no stranger to gluttony, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah. I, I quite like gluttony. <laughs> well, you know what's funny about these seven deadly sins, right, is that, again, this being this amateur historian and looking at these things, like, a lot of these sins are just constructs that were created by the ruling classes to keep people down. What's wrong with eating a little bit too much? What's wrong Absolutely. with a bit of lust? What's wrong with being a bit proud, you know? Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the two sisters originally, in the original production, were played by Lottie Lenyer, yep. who was the wife of, of Kurt Bayer. Mm-hmm. And also um, the the partner uh, or wife of, of the producer or the, or the gentleman that commissioned the work, yep. um, Edward James. Mm-hmm. And his, his wife was Tilly Losh. Yeah. Who have you got playing the sisters uh, in, in your production? Yeah, it's, it's super exciting. So the playing Anna 1, so it's two sisters, right? So both called Anna. There's Anna 1 and Anna 2. So Anna 1 comes out at the beginning and says, um, we're going on this adventure through America. It's me and my twin sister. Uh, she's the, you know, I'm the practical one. I'm the smart one. She's the free spirit. But we're really kind of the same person. So there's this like question mark throughout the whole thing where are they twins? Is it just sort of like this psychological thing of it's just an expression too different? You know, it's this, it's the id and the super ego, you know, in the, in the same person. And so playing them is Margaret Trubiano is playing Anna One, who is an incredibly talented musical theatre opera singer who works regularly with Opera Australia. And playing Anna Two, who's the dancer, is um, Ali Graham, who was who danced in... I did a film for Pinchgut Opera and got to know her there as a dancer. And she is the human pretzel. Like, it is amazing to see, the, you know, what she can do. And it's been amazing to see... It's that funny thing where... They're not twins, obviously, right? But as we're progressing, suddenly they're sort of moving in the same way and blinking a bit more in synergy. So it's really about finding some connection between the two of them. So it's like, yeah, it's completely electric. Because there's a dance component to the yep. the piece as well. Yeah. Um, and took in my, my research as well, I was amazed to see that George Balanchine was the original mm-hmm. director yep. in 1933. Yeah, it was amazing. It was like absolute dream team, you know. And, and these are this is a Jewish, Kurt Weill, this is a Jewish-German person who's on the run, who arrives in Paris and puts on this extraordinary work. And again, George Balanchine was known for uh, his incredibly innovative aesthetic and something new. And so... You know, we're really moving away from this idea of like 
it's Weimar Germany. It's a smoky Berlin cabaret. And going, that's completely wrong. Like, what we're interested in is something that's, like, hyper-contemporary and, you know, really pushing these kind of mediums and these styles to into a place which is... um hopefully forward thinking which is you know with Shannon Burns who's the choreographer who did the opera on the harbour with me and the pinch gut film um we're really trying to find something that is you know kind of biting and exciting and you know not sort of sinking back into those Kurt Weill Weimar tropes which he would have been spinning in his grave and so would have Brecht you know Mm -hmm. have you done any Weill before no no I've always wanted to oh yeah yeah. it's the best I love Kurt Weill yeah it's the best. It's so raw and, and, and authentic, you know, that, that what we got back to at the start of the conversation. I mean, he's the genius behind Brecht and Vile. You know, Brecht was furious that people left the Threepenny Opera and were whistling the tunes as opposed to, like, leaving with the, you know, talking about the polemic. And, um, you know, the Seven Deadly Sins, they had a massive falling out for that reason. Like, you know, I, I really think, like, I love Brecht, but he was the ultimate hustler, you know. Mm-hmm. He had an office full of women on typewriters, most of whom he was sleeping with, who would just sort of steal their ideas. Whereas, you know, so, and he was just an agent of incredibly good taste as well. Brecht was obsessed with what the trends were, what was exciting. Whereas Vile was the kind of the diligent craftsman, you know, tinkering away a, a workhorse who was making stuff that was, you know, totally incredible. And two distinct um, periods in his career, you know, the, the German period, mm-hmm. um, that Weimar, working with Brecht, etc. And then after his um, escape from Europe to, to America, yeah. that, that Broadway yeah. canon yeah. that he wrote, you know, working with people like Maxwell Anderson and Moss Hart. I know. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's completely staggering that, like... So this is a guy who, who, who trained in the Vienna School of Atonality, you know, who then goes and creates, like, these sensations across Europe and then ends up in Broadway. So you listen to... I mean, I love it, right? And you listen to something like One Touch of Venus, which is, like, a beautiful, great Broadway musical written by Kurt Weill, but you can't help but get that kind of, like, idiosyncratic... Um, German weirdness that sort of like works its way in and that's what makes it kind of exciting in my opinion yeah I, I think I've read a, a quote from Sondheim who, who disregards yeah. his German period but certainly it yeah. appreciates um, the Broadway period of yeah I find, I find that which I found weird. was extraordinary that, yeah. that Sondheim who, who is has elements of atonal yeah. in his work would would disregard the German period is that thing where it's like yeah. I don't want to be in a club that would have someone like me as a member you know <laughs> yeah. Groucho Marx yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um, what is Mahogany so this is the second half of the double bill right so it's the seven deadly sins paired with the Mahogany Songspiel oh show us the way to the next whiskey bar oh don't ask why oh don't ask why for we must for if we don't find the next whiskey bar I tell you we must die I tell you we must die I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die Seven Deadly Sins is a narrative journey of these two sisters across America hustling to raise money for their house. The second half is... So Brecht wrote these poems 
um, in his early 20s about this fictional town called Mahogany where anything goes. You can drink, you can smoke, you can eat, you can have sex with whoever. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the kind of um, the anarchy of pleasure, really, encapsulated in this town. So what we're presented with the Mahogany are kind of five vignettes from this, um, from this environment, from this place, which ultimately God descends on Mahogany and um, not to give anything away, but sort of, uh, uh, you know, tries to condemn these people for living in a way that he disapproves of. And so for me, the link between the two is if the seven deadly sins is about condemning these sins and critiquing them, the Mahogany is an extended celebration of everything that we're meant to feel guilty about. So I want it to be sort of like fun and visceral and kind of wild. Mm. Wonderful. It seems to be a bit of a resurgence in Violet at the moment because I, I know the Victorian Opera are doing yeah. Happy End yeah. in Victoria yeah. at the end of March. Uh, so that's that's I know. wonderful. There's a vile moment happening in Australia. W-E-I. As well as the V-I. I know, I know. You've got to be careful there. Moment, yeah, absolutely. Your opening night routine, do you do you have a process that you go through? Yeah. Warm up, say a prayer. <laughs> Call your mum. Yeah, get the Ouija board out and just ask Kurt Vile for some last minute tips. Um, yeah, I mean, often opening night is just such a kind of, it's such a whirlwind because, you know, I'm sometimes to the, uh, you know, annoyance of the people that I work with, I do believe that like changes can be made up until the point when that curtain opens, you know, like. Um, oh, Ethel, Ethel Merman got to a point in the rehearsal period where she said, I miss Birdseye now. <laughs> Frozen, you can't change anything. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> and yeah, so you know, I kind of rage, rage, rage against the dying delight in a way. And um, so, in terms of, it's really just like going into those frantic changes if you if you can and if they're needed. And then um, it's pretty much like I think a champagne before you know the mm. show start kind of helps settle the nerves. Yeah, exactly. And then you just kind of ride that wave. Are you superstitious in the theatre? Uh no. No, no, no. no. Yeah. Whistling in dressing rooms is okay. All yeah. of that, saying Macbeth, whistling in dressing rooms, like all of that stuff, I think um, it's fun. Like, you know, I love the sort of like, you know, the, the the cultural idea of it, but no, I'm not superstitious. Do you read reviews? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you take notice of them? Yeah. Mm. Completely. And I think the only thing worse than a review that you disagree with is one that you do agree with, you know, like, but that's how you learn. Like often when I've read like a, a, a crappy review, I've gone, you know what, actually they kind of have a point, huh? Like th- th- these reviews are out there. And for me, there's no point in kind of ignoring that they exist. Um, and there can be something frustrating because, you know, often the quality of criticism in this country has a, a, a lot to be wanting for, but um, no, you can't just bury your head in the sand and there's stuff to be learned. What's your favourite part of a theatre? Where do you like hanging? I, I'm like I'm frantic in the theatre where I hate sitting at the production desk. You know, I, I like to be up there. You know, up close and personal. So I think there's there's a real kind of sweet spot which I quite like during um in the opera world where it's the stage orchestral, um which is the first time the orchestra in the theatre with the singers and the responsibility of running that room goes to the conductor. So the director has to sort of zip it, right? But then you can kind of weave around throughout the action and sort of like whisper things in people's ears and sort of like direct them from within. So that's quite a fun place to be in a rehearsal, you know, like this, um, uh, like oil, <laughs> you know, kind of like slipping around the stage. It's a lot of fun. Who is that man? Yeah, yeah, get him out of here. <laughs> well, Connor, this chat has been wonderful. Um, we've been talking about it for a while. I'm glad that we could coordinate it with... Um, the approach of uh, the Kurt Weill double bill, Seven Deadly Sins and the Mahagoni Schongspiel, which is playing the Red Line uh, Old Fitz Theatre uh, from 31st of March to the 23rd of April and booking through Red Line, I guess, yep. the Red Line website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Chukas, have fun. I'm Thank sure you. it will be wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Constantine Costi and his team present a Kurt Weill double bill of operatic cantata, dance and theatrical mayhem. The Seven Deadly Sins by Weill and Brecht sees two sisters hustling their way across America. They will charm and swindle to make ends meet in any way they can to survive. Mahagoni Schongspiel by Weill, Brecht and adaptation by Hauptmann is a manic celebration of the fall of a fictitious city, Mahagoni whose gold facade is nothing but a cover for nausea, vice and despair. This Kurt Weill double bill plays March 31st through to April 23rd and is presented by Redline Productions at the Old Fitz Theatre. 
The Fitz has always been a space where anything is possible, and for the first time, it will be home to a debauched operatic spectacle. More information on the show, and indeed Red Lion's season for 2022, can be found at www.redlineproductions.com.au. My guest in this episode, director Constantine Costi. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.